Let me share with you a profound truth, since many parents in this room and obviously many children, I want to share this profound truth, that children are different from each other. It's a big shocker, right? You can raise them in the same house. You can feed them the same food if they'll eat everything. They can go to the same school and they can have the same opportunities in life as each other, but they will undoubtedly be different in many ways. I think you find that to be true. In my own family, I'm the middle of three boys, and that explains a whole bunch. Um, I can see nodding. I see nodding here for sure. But see, my older brother, he was the, the pervasive student. He was six years older than me, and his, his age, educational path took him in several different directions. He, he started in an honors program at MU, and then he spent a little time at Rolla, and he, and he ended up getting a, an honors degree, I'm sorry, an advanced degree in art. But in the middle, he did pre-med and engineering and business and education before settling in that career. And, and it's the art scene, and he has a, had a bit of an eclectic lifestyle, was definitely his comfort zone. That's, that was what he did. And my younger brother is much closer in age to me, and he was the adventurous one. After being my college roommate for one year, his freshman year, my senior year at Missouri State, I graduated, and, and he went on to do all kinds of stuff. He was a Washington, D.C. intern. He was a foreign exchange student in Australia. He spent some time in Guyana. He was a social worker in the Bronx. And then he and his wife moved um, from near Ground Zero in New York City to San Francisco right off the, the Bay Bridge. And so they like urban life. They rarely drive their car. They walk everywhere they go and just enjoy being in the middle of the city scene. And then there's me, the middle child, right? I did my four years of college. I got my two degrees. I promptly married my college sweetheart, built a house in the suburbs, got my dog, my cat, and two kids. I am cliche. But I also gave my parents so I had grandkids, so I'm winning. <laughs> but we were raised in the same house. And, and we were raised by the same parents, obviously, but the three of us are very different. And I think if you look at your family, you might be able to see the same thing. And our parents love us equally, but not identically. And we are all God's children. You are a child of God, and so are the people next to you, and so is everybody you can think of. Children of God. And, and God loves you equally, but not identically. We're each the recipient of different blessings, different talents, and different callings to our life. He has created and intentionally placed you in a particular place and time for his good purpose. There's a reason you were born where you were in this period of time that you are, for the purpose he has for your life. Now again, we are all different, but God loves you equally and identically to all these people that are around you. And that's just his nature. His love is unconditional, it's boundless, it's limitless, and it's more than we can possibly comprehend, even though we're called to love each other that same way. And just one of the ways he expresses that love is that he wants a personal relationship with each one of us. To make that happen, he has to pursue us. And it's always been that way. Go all the way back to the beginning. You know the story, Adam and Eve, they enjoyed this time in the garden, right? They had a direct and personal relationship with the creator. They walked with him. They talked with him. They saw him in the presence, whatever that looked like. But feeling shame and embarrassment for the sin they committed, they hid. And I want to pick that up at the story. This is found in Genesis 3, verses 8 and 9. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God 
among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man. He says, where are you? You see, in their absence, even despite the sin, God was seeking them. Where are you, he called. He went looking for them. Now, Jesus, in the nature of God, shares the same pursuit. In Luke 15, 1 through 4, we find the story. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered to hear Jesus. All these people, the, the undesirables, the sinners, the people that, that no one liked, right? But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Listen to what Jesus says in response to the way the, critis- the Pharisees criticized him. He says, then Jesus told him this parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses just one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? We know the story of this parable. And Jesus often spoke in parables and allegories to teach a point. Another that shares the same message is the parable of the lost coin. We hear the story of this lady tearing her house apart to find this one little coin. It's not that God didn't know where the couple was hiding. He's God. He knew where Adam and Eve were. And it's not that Jesus didn't know who it is that needs to be saved. He is God. He knows. And the parables remind us that we will put a lot of effort into pursuing things that we think are valuable. In the parables, it is a single sheep or a single coin. Today, we mistakenly spend time and energy seeking things of the wrong kind of importance. We go after this thing and we leave all this stuff to the side as we pursue this one thing that we say is so important. But the good news is that God knows your worth, even if you don't know what your worth is. So God calls out to you. God seeks you out and he pursues you. I want to take a moment and look at the 23rd Psalm. This is one that we're familiar with and you can probably recite it pretty close to verbatim, but if you'll indulge me, let's, let's read it together from the screen. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, I walk through the valley of the shadows of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want to look at verse 6 in particular of that. And it says, Surely your goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Hebrew word in the NIV translates to follow me. Okay, don't laugh. I really practiced this really hard last night. Did I do that right? I, I do my trill at the back. It's supposed to be at the front, but I can't do it. Which is the Hebrew word, which means pursuing or chasing. That's what it literally means. And it, not only does it say pursuing and chasing, but it's with considerable effort and focus, okay? And so the ironic thing about this word hraf, where it says, follow me, is that almost everywhere else that it's used, especially in the First Testament, it is talking about a group being hostile 
and tenaciously pursuing another group. Like the Egyptians pursued the Israelites, right? They were chasing after them. And it almost always means this tenacious, you know, going after with a lot of effort. But in this one case, in this one case, this word hurrah is put together with nouns tov hasid. That was easy. My spell checker hated this, by the way. It's not a hostile force, but faithful and loyal goodness that pursues us, okay? Nouns, it's not describing something as being good. He's saying the good, the mercy, the loyal, the faithful. That is what is tenaciously pursuing you. It's going after you. It will catch you. Pastor and Christian author Max Lucado offers this encouraging quote. It says, if there are a thousand steps between us and God, he will take all but one. He will leave the final one for us. The choice is ours. I love that. And I don't think we should limit God to say, okay, this is what you are. This is what you do. You're going to take a thousand steps. So I took the liberty of adding a zero just to make a point. So I call this morning's message 10,000 steps. But the same truth applies God will still take all but one, no matter how many of those steps are. He will take all but that last one and leave that final one for you. The good news is he's always that one step away. So when you read Psalm 23, we're talking about the Lord being with me and all this stuff. He's right there, right there. Time and time again, the Bible shares stories of people making that all-important decision and taking that, that one step. John 5, verse 3. 5, 1 through 8, we read this a couple weeks ago. It talks about this pool, and, and there's a lot of lame people around this pool. And there's one man, in fact, I'll just start at, at verse 1. It says, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, one of who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, what a crazy question that may seem. But Jesus doesn't ask these questions without knowing the answer, okay? And the man says, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the water when the water is stirred. You know, when all these people are running and is splashing, he keeps him away. He says, while I'm trying to get someone else, goes ahead and cuts in front of me. Now, does that sound like a metaphor for our life? Here's what Jesus said. He said, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Now, we don't know if that was a miraculous healing or God knew that, that he just, that's what the man needed to hear to, to just take ownership and not let anything else cut between him and the blessing. The healing power exists, and, and Jesus was there with the invitation. He says, I am here. Come to me. Get up. In Mark 2, 13 through 17, it says, Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Okay, so tax collectors in this period of time, not, not really looked upon well. And he says to him, he says, follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's home, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. He has come to call the sinners. Therefore, I think it's safe to say that he has come for all of us. He seeks us out. He pursues us. And our relationship with him is the key to our salvation. What makes salvation possible is his pursuit and not our works. There is nothing that you can do to earn the grace of God. Now, I'm saying that with some positivity, right? Because if there, if there was something we could do, it wouldn't be grace. And if, it was, if that wasn't the case, then there would be no source of hope. There would be no need for hope. But we have a hope because of this thing we call grace. This isn't something that should discourage you to hear that there's nothing you can do to earn grace. That doesn't mean don't try, right? Be encouraged because look at it this way. Don't even look at it as if it's impossible. It says, view it as if the work has already been completed. All the hard stuff needs to be done. The mission is accomplished. The gift simply awaits you. All you have to do is take that step and accept it. Now, sometimes we think we don't deserve that gift. I suggest we're making that judgment based on our own understanding of justice and deserving, not on God's. And God's choices are not human's choices, and and thank God for that. Because there aren't one of us that, that we would make the same kind of decisions God would. But we don't have that knowledge and that understanding of, of the big picture. And how many of us, if we had a hundred of anything of value and lost just one, would just go ahead and leave those and go chase that one? Maybe, maybe not. But with usually with the stipulation, okay, I hope these things are safe or someone's going to watch us. But how many would just leave it and go pursue that? Or, or tear apart everything we have looking for a single small coin? Maybe. But how many of us would honestly give the life of our only child to save the life of someone who disrespects or hates or even rejects us? But see, God doesn't look at it that way. He will take every action and step necessary to find you wherever you are. So don't despair. Don't be afraid. John Newton has this quote. It says, If the Lord be with us, we have no cause of fear. His eye is upon us, his arm over us. His ear is open to our prayer. His grace sufficient, his promise unchangeable. This is the hope we have, and it's based on the promise that he has made. You will never be so lost that he can't find you. Romans 5, 1 through 4 reads this way. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have a peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the glory of God. So what does this final step look like for you? Is it inviting Jesus into your life like the tax collectors and sinners? Come to my table, commune with me. Is it putting an end to your complaining and self-pity so you can get up and walk with him and find peace and healing like the lame man at the pool? Is it recognizing your sin and come out of hiding and saying, I messed up, God, here I am. I'm not hiding from you. Here I am like Adam and Eve should have done. More than likely, it's confessing something to God, repenting and accepting his authority over your life. The truth is that no one can take that step for another person. Sure, we can, we can make our children go to church. We can encourage our friends and neighbors to come to church. And, and we make our children say their prayers before dinner and before bed. 
We can encourage people to give an offering and we can encourage people to participate in communion. We can even go through the motions of baptism. But no one can take the final step for anyone else. The step of accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is yours and yours alone to make. But you have the love and support right here with you. As a church, we partner with God in this endeavor as we continue his work in the world by guiding others into a relationship with him. You know, I started this message by talking about us as God's child. This is based on you having taken that step. John 1.12 says, but all who did receive him, right, all accepted that, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So if there's a step to be taken, friends, I urge you to wait no more time to claim that promise he's made for you. Revelation 3.20 says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. He's that close. He's saying, here I am. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. That's how close. Once you've taken that step, there's more good news. God continues to pursue you every day. And in every way. You do not have to live your Christian life on your own. You get to live it in fellowship with God. In a lot of ways, walking with him and talking with him. Just like Adam and Eve got to do in person in the Garden of Evil. There's a song by the artist Christian Stanfield. And it's called One Thing Remains. You might be familiar with it. And I'm just going to share a part of the lyrics. It starts with the chorus. Your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. Your love never fears or fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. Now think about that. It's not, you can look at it and say, God gave up on me because I'm too big of a sinner. You can say, I've already checked the box and God gave up. No, it never fails, it never gives, it runs out, runs out on me. And then the chorus starts, it says, it's higher than the mountains that I face. It's stronger than the power of the grave. And constant in the trial and the change, this one thing remains. It says, and on and on and on it comes. Yes, it overwhelms and satisfies my soul. And I will never, ever be afraid. This one thing remains. In death, in light, we sing. In death, in light, I'm confident and covered by the power of your great love. Then he goes on, my debt is paid. It's nothing that can separate my heart from your great love. And it finishes with, your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. So true. In the book of 1 John, the author emphasizes the connection between our love for God and our love for fellow believers. In, in the verse starting in 1 John 4, 19, we're reminded that he loves because we love because he first loved us. Now, we often take that and say, he loves us, so we love other people. But, but God showed his love for us first by sending his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, right? He took those steps. Those who are the beneficiaries of that love, God loves in return, or they love God in return. And he took the steps to reconcile us, right? All of our sins. When we come to the cross, we can connect with God because of that sacrifice. He took those steps to reconcile us. And the response is a choice that you must make. And it goes further than that. If the love relationship you have with God is real, then it, it does things. It manifests itself it, in your love to others. It just so overflows. You can't help but feel that love and just love for others. 
The Bible tells us we should seek God. Listen to the promise of Jeremiah 29, 13. It says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You know why he's easy to find? Because he's right there. He watches and he waits with anticipation for us to do this. Psalm 53, 2, it says, God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there's any who understand, any who seek him. The entire Bible is a story of God pursuing us from Adam to the apostles' teachings to the workings of God in our lives today. God faithfully takes the steps with a desire to reconcile and have a close personal relationship with each one of us. Jesus' mission on earth was to seek and save the lost. Even in Ezekiel 34, 11, it says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. He says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. God says you're worth saving and seeking because you are important to him. So this week, I want you to remember and reflect on the Max Locato quote. Let me share it again. It says, if there are a thousand steps between us and God, he will take all but one. He will leave the final one for us. The choice is ours. So now ask yourself, how far are you from God or how far do you feel from God? It's probably not as far as you think and definitely not as far so far that he can't reach you. But, he sure, but be sure to take that final and important step. God is relentless in his pursuit, tenacious, pursuing us. He's in pursuit of righteousness. He's in pursuit of justice and mercy and absolutely in pursuit of you. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, creator of all, we thank you that you never give up You never give up on us. You never give up on pursuing us. Lord, we thank you that we have this way to connect with you on a deep personal level. You said we are of such value that you will lay down the life of your son. You will send him to walk among us, to teach us, and then to be punished, crucified, and buried so that you can raise him up so we can be reconciled to you. God, we know our faith walk is long. And along the way, there are things that distract us. We chase things that are of lesser importance or the the easy 99 instead of the, the hard one. So we thank you that you never give up, that you continue to be there. So when we seek you, we find you. So God, put a burden on our heart to seek you in everything we do. And to find the confidence and faith in knowing that no matter how many steps we feel away from you, if there's steps that we've taken in the wrong direction, we turn and face you. And we raise our hand and say, God, I am here. I messed up, but I love you and I know you love me. Let's do this again. God, I thank you for who you are, that you hear our prayers. You take everything into consideration and use it for your good purpose. We thank you for being among us this morning and going with us as we leave here to not only seek out the mission of the church, but to live missional lives following the mission of of that, of the life of your son you sent. So as you rule the heavens and you have called us to do the same here on earth, there will be good stewards of everything you've given us, including this message. We thank you again. In your son's name we pray. Amen.